It's, it's good to worship. It's good to worship with you this morning. Uh, before we get started, uh, one of our core values here at Lakewood is uh, relational community. So it's in that frame that I would share with you and ask you to pray for uh, some uh, passing uh, of, of two gentlemen uh, this past week, Dave Lundgren and uh, Kurt Busby. Pray, be in prayer for uh, the families, for Kathy and children and Sonia and their family. Um, being a part of a church family means that we weep with those who are weeping. Uh, weeping. And if you have opportunity, uh, pray for them, uh, serve them, re- reach out to them. Um, so uh, we come this morning as needy people, don't we? Uh, so we go to his word. And I, I have a question that everyone in this room, everyone in your family, everyone in the Brainerd Lakes community, they want to know the answer to this question. How do people change? The parent is thinking right now, how can I change my child to be a decent kid and function as a human rather than the strange alien they seem to be? Well, the child is asking, how can my parents change so that they care, listen, value, and still lovingly hold me accountable? The individual fighting against addiction wants change. Each of us wrestling with personal, private, secret sin, whether big or small, we want to know how to change. The struggling marriage wants something to change. Those suffering physically or financially, want their heart to be changed from bitterness or anger. Many of us want change from thoughts of discontentment that we struggle with, being content with the life that God's given us. Many of us want change from fear and anxiety that cripples us. This is the question whether they know it or not, of the world around us as they navigate a life seeking what? The world around us seeking change, peace, and ultimate satisfaction. This is the question that sits at the center of our passage this morning, so I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Galatians chapter 3, will be in verses 1 through 9. And we find ourselves in a critical passage. It's critical because like last week, it centers itself on the core implications of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Galatian churches that Paul is writing to, they've been discerning Jesus, as Galatians 1.6 says. They've turned to another gospel. They've turned to another news source, another hope, another form of rescue. They've been influenced by the legalists of their day that Jesus is not enough. He's not enough for salvation and he's not enough for your sanctification, they say. Or another way to put that, they would argue that Jesus is not enough to change you. You need human effort, they would argue. You need laws. You just need extra in your life if you want true change and true right standing before God. Well, here's what Paul will be convincing of us this morning. Jesus is enough. 
because he changes people. He changes people. I'd like to break up our passage in three movements that demonstrate this reality to us. First is our desire for change. Would you read with me, please, verse 1? Oh, foolish Galatians, who, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. There, in this verse, are three phrases. The first, oh, foolish Galatians. Now, Paul has often used this word in his writings, this word foolish, throughout his letters to refer to people who are unbelieving, those who are not thinking. So really what he's saying is these Galatian churches, they're acting like non-believers of Jesus. That's why he says, oh, foolish Galatians. You're acting like Jesus doesn't exist. Next, the next phrase, who, who has bewitched you? The word bewitched here is only used one time in the New Testament. Some of your translations might say, who has cast a spell on you? I kind of like that better. Now, this word, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, this word is found in the Old Testament twice by Moses. And it often had the idea of, yes, bewitching or tricking, but, but as Moses used it, it had the idea of maybe doing evil to someone or having a lack of compassion on them. That last phrase here in our verse, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, well, going back to last week, we, we know from Paul's argument that Jesus died for a purpose. He died to provide you with right standing with God. So we could read verse 1 this way. Hey, Galatian churches, the tea, the gossip, the situation is this. You're acting like non-Christians. You're not thinking straight. You've been tricked. These people influencing you are not your fam. They have no compassion. They're actually hurting you spiritually and turning you away from the truth of Jesus and his work on your behalf. Now, we've said a lot of negative things about these Judaizers, uh, these people who are influencing these believers. And Paul himself has strong words for the Judaizers and even the Galatians themselves. But I want to defend both of them for a moment. Why exactly, what exactly are these legalists concerned about? Why are these Galatian believers listening to them? Why do some of us wrestle with legalism in our own mind and heart? Why do we seek to add to the gospel and put stipulations on ourselves and others that Jesus never would? Why do we sometimes get nervous when a faithful follower of Jesus looks and talks a little different than we do? Yes, part of the reason is sin. Part of the reason is you and I in these Galatian churches, we play a fuzzy math game when we add to the gospel. Part of the reason is that we're strained from the freeness of the gospel. And perhaps at times we're motivated by personal preference rather than allowing freedom for other believers. But I believe there is another motivation. It's actually a good thing gone wrong. So let me frame it this way. Do you know what I personally have in common with the legalist and the fundamentalist, the Pharisee 
these Judaizers, the Galatian churches, and many of you, I have a deep concern and a desire for holiness. That's why they're nervous. That's why they're adding rules, because they want holiness. They want change. And I share that desire and that concern. I have a deep concern and a desire for, for God to be honored, for sin to not reign in my life. I, I, I want to be changed into the image of Christ. But that's not the issue, is it? The issue is, how do we obtain that change? How do people change? That's where the disagreement is coming. Legalists, these Judaizers in Paul's day, were saying, if you want to change, you need human effort. You need to obey the Old Testament law. Paul says, if you want to change, Jesus is enough. Look with me, uh, even here in our next movement, in verses 2 through 5, as Paul alludes to our foolish self-help. Our foolish self-help. Now, in these verses, verses 2 through 5, Paul asks five questions that forces the Galatian churches to consider, and really forces us to consider, the sufficiency of Jesus. And more specifically, we must consider the lie of self-help and human effort. Well, let's consider each question together. Uh, Read with me, please, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So our first question. Did you receive the Spirit by works or faith? Now, how is it that the Spirit of God is available to faithful followers? How do we obtain the Spirit of God? How do we obtain Jesus living inside of us? How do we obtain even the change that happens to us? How do we get declared righteous because of the perfect work of Jesus? Now, this question, did you receive the Spirit by works or faith? It's it's a bit of a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's quite clear through Paul's initial preaching in Acts 13, to these Galatian churches, by the way, in the experience of their own salvation, and in the beginning of the letter, that they received the Spirit by faith, not by works. And so it is with any faithful follower of Christ. So did you receive the Spirit by works or faith? Faith. Second question. Read beginning of verse 3. This is my favorite one, I think. Are you so foolish? Again, Paul uses the term foolish. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a term that expresses a lack of understanding, a lack of belief, or an unwise pattern of life from a lack of data and information. The apostle turns to these churches and he essentially says, are you really that unbelieving? Are you really thinking this wrong-headed? You know, the Galatian churches, they're, they're going through exactly what you and I do. 
We make uh, great declarations of who Jesus is and what he's done and and the power of the Spirit of God. But then there are times where I turn this question on myself and I go, Matt Nagel, are you really that foolish? Are you really going to live in this moment as if Jesus doesn't exist? Are you going to live and function as an unbeliever? Well, we'll answer the question for Paul. Yes, they were foolish. And yes, so are we at times, aren't we? Well, verse 3 continues and leads us to this next question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So our third question. Okay, have you begun by the Spirit, but now? But now you're being perfected elsewhere? This word perfected is critical. Again, what is the desire of everyone in this room? Change. For something to be different. I mean, real, lasting change. You know, not the, like, two-week change when we make our New Year's resolutions come January. Lasts for about two weeks. And then I just make donations to the gym. I I don't go anymore. But there's a sense in which Paul comes in and he says to these Galatian churches, the legalists, to Paul, that really to you and I, what's the reality? The reality is we want to be changed. We want to be perfected. This word literally means to be completed. I I want to be complete. This word has the idea of being accomplished. I want accomplishment in my life. Some kind of end goal, some kind of finished product. Paul, he uses this word perfected in a couple other well-known places. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, he says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion, perfection in the fear of God. Here's a well-known one, Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, to perfection, to the end result, change. So Paul comes and asks this question. He asks the question, okay, if you started in the Spirit, do you think you're now being perfected? Do you think you're going to be accomplished and finished by your works? Well, Paul asks this question because he knows with certainty that faithful followers of Christ, they will be changed. And you have been changed, haven't you? The change began as the Galatian believers put their trust and faith in the work of Jesus. Like us, they had been given new hearts, a new hope, and an enablement through the Spirit of God to honor God with their life. If they, if these Galatian churches, if we, if we, Lakewood Church, if we've been changed by the Spirit through faith, do we think that will reach the end goal and accomplishment of a changed life by working hard and by the hands of our human effort? Well, Paul's question forces us to say, no, absolutely not. If we've begun by the Spirit, it necessitates that we will be changed by the Spirit. Well, verse 4 leads us to another question. 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, this fourth question, did you suffer in vain? That might seem like a strange question. Paul alludes to these Christians that when they became believers, they suffered. What was that suffering for? Was it for nothing, he asks? See, the reality is that Christians have a long history of suffering, and I mean real suffering. Not the imagined suffering in the victim complex that marks many Christians and churches. We just prayed a moment ago for the persecuted church, where quite literally, they are not able to gather as we are, or to say Jesus is enough in a public way throughout their life. In Acts 13, after these Galatians believed in Jesus, the Jews of the area influenced the crowd to stir up persecution against them. So they knew suffering. And like it is in many places around the world, a public declaration of faith in a crucified and resurrected Jesus brought consequences. Standing up and declaring that Jesus was enough was often costly. It could cost you your life, your job, your standing in the community. It could cost you division in your family. It could cost you comfort and reputation. Let me remind you of these Galatians' response when they heard the gospel in Acts 13. Verse 48 says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, freedness, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and clung to Christ. These faithful followers, these Galatian churches, they rejoiced in the freeness of the gospel. They rejoiced that they were right with God by faith. They rejoiced that they had Jesus. They had peace. They had forgiveness. They were even willing to endure hardship and circumstance because they had true life. Paul turns to them now. He turns to them now. If Jesus isn't enough, if you think you need the law to be perfect, if you think your human effort will give you more of the Spirit, was all that suffering for no reason? Did you waste your time in rejoicing in Jesus? Well, we answer for Paul again and we say, no, no. It wasn't empty. You had right reason to rejoice in the midst of suffering. But look at our last question in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, what kind of miracles are we talking about here? When we think of miracles, we might envision the healing of lepers, the raising of dead men, the turning of water into wine, or the Minnesota Vikings winning a Super Bowl. That would be a miracle. You know, the kind of New Testament supernatural stuff that we're used to. What we know of the biblical data of Acts 13, and really the letter of Galatians that we're in, I think Paul is talking about the miracle of what theologians call regeneration. Or as Jesus put it, the miracle of being born again. The miracle 
of trusting and choosing Jesus. The miracle of God living in you. The miracle of being changed. The Galatian churches, and really Lakewood, Lakewood Church, we can look around at the lives of people and see miracles. You're here right now. That's a miracle. A young child sees that Paul Patrol and Dora aren't the true saviors and they trust in Jesus. That, that's a miracle. A bored teenager sees the excitement and joy of God and trusts in Jesus. That's a miracle. An American adult sees the emptiness of our consumer culture. And as Jesus says in a parable in Matthew 13, that the true treasure is a life of a faithful follower. And they trust in Jesus. That's a miracle. An older person comes to the end of their life and sees the vanity of so much that they held tightly and they trust in Jesus. That's a miracle. Paul wants to know, are these miracles that you're seeing, this heart change, this new life, are these miracles happening because of your human effort? Because of your clever plans? Because of your obedience to a list of laws in the Old Testament? Is that how these miracles are happening? Or are they happening by faith? By the Spirit of God? Well, we answer and we say, yes, true change. True change. The miracle of new life takes place through faith. Our self-help ultimately is so foolish. And I'm sure many of us can think of examples of just the vanity and the emptiness of seeking change in our life and only the Lord being able to bring it. Uh, I think of just even in my own life with my own family. Um, man, you know, you know what's a miracle? Uh, my kids uh, woke up today and, you know, got dressed, brushed their teeth, they're here today. That's a miracle. That has nothing to do with the clever parenting of Matt Nagel. Actually, it's in spite of me. Like, there, there, there's a sense in which any fruit that I see in my life, uh, see in the life of my own family, isn't the product of my cleverness and my ability and my strategizing, but just like the Lord, the Lord working. Miracles. Does it happen by works or faith? By faith. By the Spirit. Well, look with me now at our last movement in our passage. In, really, what we're trying to answer this question. How? How do people change? We all have a desire to change. We want something to be different. But there's, there's foolishness in our self-help. We go through these questions and we go, yeah, I can't do it. But Paul here... He has us consider this question, and he points to our adoption. Our adoption. And today is, if you're not aware, Orphan Sunday. Thank you, Lakewood. Uh, I am very grateful that many of you are very faithful and diligent in the caring of orphans, whether through fostering or adopting or praying or be a generous giver. Uh, it's, it's right that we would take adoption seriously. But Paul points to how we've been adopted. Read with me, please, verses 6 through 9. 
Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul, pointing his readers, how do people change? He points them to Abraham. This begins the start of an argument that really goes through the end of the chapter, but it's important for our question this morning. How do people change? Abraham. Let let me tell you about Abraham. Paul points them to Abraham because people change by way of their adoption. Their identity as a son or a daughter of Abraham. Now, the quotation in verse 6 is from Genesis 15. And if you're not familiar with this narrative, it's a time in history where Abraham found himself in a situation wondering. Wondering whether true change would happen if God was true to his promises. Abraham's faith... In the midst of wondering, Abraham's faith in the midst of the hope of change, in the midst of promises made to him by God, is what makes him the man of faith that we read about in the scriptures. What might be foreign to some of us, and very likely these Galatian believers, is that they, in fact, themselves were the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham long ago. Our friend Abe was told by God that in him would all the families of the world be blessed. That is, through Abraham, blessing, faith, good standing, and miracles would be available to all. Well, many years later, the gospel writer Matthew would start explaining the narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection this way. First verse! First verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And by faith, those trusting in Jesus are in union with him. And like we said last week, faithful followers of Christ, they have died and rose again to new life in Christ. In Christ, we, we become, as Paul says in verse 7, the sons of Abraham. The ones who receive adoption and blessing, and with that miracle of blessing comes change. Change in our hearts. Which leads me to the qualification that Paul makes very clear in our passage here. Change happens. Real change happens when we are connected to Jesus. The stark reality is this. There are many who want change. There are many who seek to obtain change, but they do it apart from adoption. There are many, even here, who want the benefits of change, the benefits of Jesus, but they don't want him. My friends, if you want change, You must want Christ. Can I ask you a a personal question? 
Are you connected to Jesus? Are you in union with him? Have you been adopted spiritually? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you still trusting in Christ? If you're here or you're watching online and you're considering Christianity, this is where true change is found in Jesus. Your most diligent effort and strategy will not bring the true lasting change that you seek. And for many of us, Many of us, we've been faithful followers for years, but perhaps the circumstances of life and our own sin has made us dull. We've begun to slide into seeking to make true change outside of Jesus, apart from Jesus. Perhaps we've fallen into the trap that thinks that the change our heart needs the change our community needs, the change that our country needs. Well, we think that it will be found in the human work of our hands. No. Adoption. Union with Christ changes things. Jesus is enough because he changes people. He changes people and he sends them out to impact change in others. By how? By doing what? By pointing them to him. The one who changes. The one who changes us. So let me give you two tangible ways that we can seek change this week. I know you come here and you're like, something's got to change. I need change. How can I change? Let me give you these two tangible things. Number one, pray. Pray. Are you having begun by the Spirit? You're now going to be perfected and changed and finished and accomplished and reach the end goal by the work of your own hands? No, no. We answer Paul's question. We say no. Prayer is a desperate act of dependence. There should be a healthy desperation to your life, to the Christian life that says, God, I I can't change. I need you. Please work on my behalf. Bring change that's needed. So pray. The the second thing I would encourage you to do is, is, yes, pray. But second, behold. Behold. And here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Behold. Behold the glory of Jesus. That's how you're transformed. That's how you're changed. You're connected to him. You're beholding him. You're looking to him. So read his word. Meditate on his truths. Sing them in your songs. Relish in them as you live in community with one another. Beholding Jesus. And as you are in union with him, that will change you, my friend, from one degree of glory to the next. How? How are we going to change? 
by faith through the Spirit as we depend on Him and as we behold His glory. I promise you, He will be faithful. He will bring change. Now, one of the ways that we behold Jesus is by looking at His promises. Now, here's how one pastor said it. In the midst of exile, God sustains his people through old promises, not new revelation. Through the ministry of the church, we build our lives on those promises. We read his promises. We preach them. We sing them. We pray them. We're immersed into them. Baptism. And we eat and drink them. Communion. And my friends, that's what we're doing here this morning as we celebrate and have communion together. We are clinging to the promises of God. We are declaring that Jesus is enough. As we take communion, we're remembering that the change that happened in our life was because of the work of Christ and not ourselves. At this time, I'll ask those that are serving communion to come forward. And my, my friends, brothers and sisters, communion is a necessary, tangible ministry to you and I. Because in a moment here, you're going to eat a little tasteless wafer. And you're going to feel that crunch, and you're going to feel it in your mouth, and you're going to chew it. And it's going to be a physical, tangible thing. And then you're going to take some juice, and that's going to touch your lips, and you're going to feel that. You're going to taste that. And just as real as the wafer and the juice is, so also are the promises of God. They're real. Have you come here and God feels distant? Have you come here and you're weary and you're heavy laden and you say, I have no rest? Communion is a remembrance that refreshes us in a tangible way. He is real. His promises are true. And he does bring change. Now, communion here, this is a family meal. If you have trusted in Jesus, we want you to partake of this. If you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus, let this go by. And just so you know, this isn't for perfect Christians. If it were, none of us would be having communion. But Communion is for those of us as faithful followers of Christ. We say, yes, true change. The change that happened at the beginning and the change I need now, it happens through Christ. Let me pray with you. Father, we come to you and we pray that we would celebrate these realities. That your death, your body being broken, your blood being spilled, it changes things. And by your grace, you have changed us. So we remember. We remember in praise you. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.